Talk features thought leadership interviews with executives from the community banking and credit union space. If you are the CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. Learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. And today we have back with us Pete Wilder from Godfrey and Kahn. Last time Pete joined us, we were talking about what the merger and acquisition environment looked like. During that time, we were just getting into into the beginning of this pandemic. So now Pete's here to do an update almost probably just a little over a year later. See if any of that, you know, the things that we had talked about before have shaken out or just, you know, what the latest is and how we can think about M&A activity these days. So let's get started with Bank Talk. Hi, Pete. Uh, welcome back to Bank Talk. Hi, Charlie. Nice to hear from you again. Glad you could join us. You and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? Last time we had a conversation around M&A, we were early in the pandemic and we were having a discussion just around what is this, you know, what is the pandemic going to do to M&A activity? I think was most of the conversation from last time. What I was hoping to do today was to spend just a couple of minutes with you around, you know, what has happened, you know, so maybe a, a one year later, a, a postmortem, you know, kind of where is this going? And then I talk pricing and just whatever, you know, whatever else is kind of going on in this space. Does that, that work for you? Yeah, that sounds great. Happy to do it. Are you okay with starting with activity? Uh, how yep. has activity been since we talked? Yep, you bet. Good good question. So probably the easiest way that all of your listeners can get a really good feel on what's been going on is to go all the way back to pre-pandemic. So the pandemic started, if you think about it, in probably what, March or April of 2020. Before that time, if you look back to 2017, 2018, 2019, what we were seeing on a national basis um, was about 250 M&A announcements per year, bank M&A announcements. And that I'm talking about whole bank mergers, not branch sales or other things. There are about 250 bank merger announcements every year pre-pandemic, the pandemic hit. And as I think everybody probably knows, the M&A market just absolutely collapsed. Everybody went, hold on a minute. Everybody had their own issues to deal with. You didn't know how to price the deal. The regulators didn't know. So in 2020, everything just came to a halt with the pandemic. And it took until probably third quarter of 2020 to start seeing a few transactions start happening again. And then it was kind of a slow ramp up into the fourth quarter of 2020. And then 2021, it was still ramping up. Um, as well. So basically, we went from 250 deals a year. And then in 2020, that fell to about 110 transactions. And then 2021 came around. And you saw this little bit of a buildup in the first part of 2021, and then a full on bounce back the rest of the year. So I think we ended 2021 with about 210 M&A announcements, which in in my mind, given the number, the decline in the number of charters over time, if you just look at it from a relative basis, it, it, just a full-on bounce back into M&A activity. We basically picked right back up where we left off pre-pandemic. And 2022 is basically looking like more of the same as far as the activity that's going on. The other question we get a lot, Charlie, is, you know, what about pricing? And it's basically the same story. You know, pre-pandemic, if you look at some of the deal multiple metrics out there, you'd see kind of a median of around probably 150 to 175 times tangible book. That's a good finger in the wind. That's not always a real reliable uh, metric, but that's 
basically where pricing was. And then when, when the pandemic hit, far fewer transactions announced and the ones that were being announced were probably the sellers were doing it because they had to probably, or there were other issues going on. And so the pricing fell you know, well below 150 times multiple tangible book. But now what we're seeing in 2021 and in the first part of 2022 is again, that bounce back where we're starting to see more transactions in that 150 to 175 range. We're right back to where we were pre-pandemic. So we talked about this a little bit, Pete, in uh, the last podcast that we had done on this topic. Can we just spend just a couple minutes around what's driving those multiples? What typically drives the multiple? And then more specifically, I would imagine that price to book fell off because of the uncertainty. But now as, as we think about things stabilizing and we think about you know the potential of things like you know mortgage, non-interest income going away, those types of things, you know, what's driving the ratios or, or if, you know, if you're a buyer or a seller, how do you think about what drives a 150 to a 175? A really good question. The way that I think about what I'm expecting to see in 2022 um, is I think we're going to see a lot of upward pressure on pricing. And that there's a whole bunch of different reasons for that. Primarily, it's because, well, first of all, you're right. I mean, PPP is gone, right? Mortgage refi income gone. So that's all that non-interest income that's not around anymore. That's that's bad in one way. Um, on the other hand, you know, that wasn't core earnings to begin with. So buyers weren't necessarily paying a big multiple, you know, to get those earnings because they knew those were going away anyway. So it, it didn't impact pricing all that much. So if I'm a seller, what I'm looking at is a little bit of a window here where the, those big income dollars are sort of rolling off. On the other hand, there's a lot of cash that's sitting out there on on balance sheets for buyers. They're looking for something to do with it to get a return. So that that's a good fact. The other good fact is that asset quality is essentially pristine right now. And in fact, a lot of banks have overfunded ALLs right now. So there's a little bit extra money there, maybe even in reverse provisions and other things you know, like that. So really healthy balance sheets. You add on top of that, that a lot of folks are set up for a rising rate environment. And that all of a sudden is what we see happening here. We've got this rising rate environment coming in. So there could be some additional reason for a buyer to pay up for that as well. And, and then you, you sort of pile on top of that, the fact that um, some of the federal tax legislation that has uh, that was getting kicked around last year failed. And that had to do especially with a in, potential increase in cap gains rates for some what would be large shareholders or wealthy individuals. And that's sort of off the table too, which is again, what's driving you know some of the sellers to sell. That may not really be driving why a buyer might pay more necessarily, but what it does is gives a seller another reason to say, okay, maybe this is the time to, you know, to pull the trigger on something like this. The last thing that I will say when it comes to maybe an upward pressure on pricing would be there are just fewer and fewer sellers out there. I mean, the, the number of bank charters has been declining at a rate of about compounding 4% a year, year over year. Um, so that just means there are fewer and fewer sellers out there. So when a seller does come up for sale, there's a decent chance, even if you're in a rural market, low loan growth market or whatever it is, there's a decent chance that there's somebody out there that has always sort of been interested in you or would like to do an acquisition that's going to be willing to kind of throw everything they have at it. So again, another reason why I think, and what we're seeing is, you know, sort of just you know, rising tide here is lifting all ships. I mean, there's just more and more reason why some buyers are willing to pay up for sellers right now. Is there any danger that clearly in a rising tide environment, <laughs> sometimes mm -hmm. yeah. that's sometimes it's dangerous for the buyer, right? Yeah. You meaning, bet. meaning, you know, there might be some risk buried in there 
maybe not the rising rate environment, certainly that one, but how about the credit quality? You know, it's been strong for a while because of the cash probably that's been pumped into the economy, I would think, right? You know, yeah. any possibility that people are getting either over lent or, or, you know, maybe lent into a place where that, that cash doesn't continue? We'll be right back. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, you, you bet. And I what I would say to that is you have to learn from the lessons of the past. In other words, you're right now, when the economy, when there's so much cash out in the economy and credit quality is pristine across the industry, essentially, not everybody's loan portfolio is equally as healthy. If we have a downturn in the economy in some way and there are some stressors put on loan portfolios, clearly some banks are going to do better than others. I mean, there are better loan portfolios than others. It's just right now, everything is masked because it just seems like everybody's portfolio looks so good and it's impact from the economy and the stimulus and everything else going on. It, it actually is. If, if I were a buyer and for buyers that I advise, like that's a big thing, right? Like don't overlook the due diligence in the loan portfolio because everything looks good right now. But at some point, you know, if we have a little bit of a hiccup, it might not look so good. The risk that buyers are being lulled into a little bit of a false sense of security and maybe not looking as hard as they could or should at that loan portfolio because they just, you know, they really want to get the acquisition and they're they're looking at other things. So you advise clients in this area and and as you're as you're having a discussion around what a client should do, whether it be you know on the buy side or the sell side, what do you see as the things that either a buyer or seller is coming in maybe not 100% prepared to do a deal? I expect they probably don't all come in perfectly lined up, not you know, knowing <laughs> that's, either, <laughs> either that's right. how to be a buyer or how to be a seller. Right? There are a couple of obvious uh, things that we run into. One is there aren't very many serial sellers, right? You sell once and then that's sort of it. So a lot of folks have never done this. And on the buy side, you know, there are very few serial acquirers out there. There are some, but but there aren't that many. And so a lot, I would say the majority of time when we get involved in one of these transactions, one or both of the parties have never done one, or it's been decades since they did or, you know, whatever. And I think it's just acknowledging that you don't know what you don't know, and also being objective and uh, sort of having a sense of self-awareness that you might not you know, totally know everything here. So one of the things that we try to do to help people with that is we'll do, we call it a a strategic risk and opportunity assessment on the front end. So before somebody dives in to start trying to do a transaction, we'll actually go in on kind of like a, you know, we try to make it, you know, reasonable, you know, fixed fee type of a basis or something. We'll walk in and say, look, what, here's a list of everything we want to see. Let us basically do due diligence on you, our client, so that we can make sure that you understand and your board understands all the issues that are going to be out there. And you can kind of prep yourself a little bit. And that's a really good thing to do. Now, whether you do something like that with your law firm or there's another resource out there that you use, you know, just doing something on the front end to pay attention. On the, on the sell side, which is where a lot of times these, this is really critical, there are a few things that come up 
all the time in transactions. One is in your world, Charlie, which is the core contract. I mean, literally every transaction that we're in, the core contract receives special attention from both the buyer and the seller because the question is always who pays for those termination fees? Who's paying for conversion and deconversion fees? Does the buyer want all of the service? Do they need images, for example, or do they not? And do they understand there's a fee for that or not? Or I mean, there's there are so many issues that go along with it. Understanding what you have before you jump into this process is like super critical because there are real dollars here that can be you know won or lost essentially. The other big one is if the seller has any kind of like executive compensation arrangements. So deferred comp, salary continuation plans, phantom stock plans, stock option plans, any of that stuff. They're just a whole bunch of kind of hairy tax issues that can get caught up in those things. And if you just look at it up front before you jump into a transaction, you can head almost all that stuff off. It is just, it's so much more efficient. And what we hate is when an executive who oftentimes is an owner of the bank, for example, gets surprised by a tax result in the middle of the transaction. Like they want to know that before they make the decision, they're going to sell the bank, for example, not after they've made the decision and they're negotiating an agreement and then find out their compensation on a change in control is capped in some way. That's a really interesting perspective. And yep. a couple of thoughts on that. Well, you know, when a transaction come, comes down the path and let's say it is a, uh, you are on the sell side, mm-hmm. right? So generally it's driven by somebody that has come to make an offer. Is that correct or is it, or, well, I guess there's there's two different ways that could happen, right? Either you've come to me with an offer for my bank, or I've said, I'm I'm looking for suitors. As that goes down, I I expect that the entire board, as well as the CEO, are going to be involved. Is that typically, right? That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So yeah, I I agree that it would would seem strange that there would be a shock in either of those two areas, either the, the core contract, which is a, you know, obviously there's a lot of sticklers in there if you haven't paid attention to it, or the exact comp side. And I would imagine there are also a bunch of tax consequences that that may not be even, you know, even tricky that they have to got to think through. Am I, am I thinking about that the right way? Yep. No, you're, you're totally right. And actually, in addition to all of that, one of the things you know that I do is I have a, a particular specialization in working with family-owned banks, uh, community banks. And a lot of times when like when a family owned bank is selling, there's a decent amount of liquidity that's created for one or more family members. I mean, folks can walk away with five or 10 or $20 million, you know, whatever it is, depending on how much of the bank that they own. And, you know, we even back it up. It's even another step, you know, before that. And a lot of times, by the way, the board is also made up of family members. And a lot of times what we'll do too is say like, hold on a minute, you know, we know that you want to sell or you're thinking about whatever it is that you're doing. But what about the estate planning and the wealth planning and tax strategy with all of this? Before you go out there selling your bank, why don't we look at what we would expect after tax net proceeds to look like for some of the family members and make absolutely sure that you have another investment vehicle to put that into, for example, it's going to give you the same rate of return or maybe a better rate of return. And what does that mean for future generations of the family? How do we protect that tax-wise, you know, et cetera? You know, we, we don't do the wealth planning ourselves. We're not, we're not investment advisors. But what we can do is you know, give what essentially are high net worth families who have a liquidity event really good guidance on how to protect those assets and to grow them and to have them available for future generations of their family. Uh, that's a really interesting perspective because uh, you know, bottom line is you held this thing for so many years as a family, or or you know, even just as a shareholder, mm-hmm. you, you held it that many years for something, right? You hate to give it away to Uncle Sam when it's you know when 
when push comes to shove or or your core vendor even in the in, in the comp scenario i think that you were talking about the exec comp yep. but it all comes down to how much are you taking away yep no you're that is so insightful charlie you're so on top of it i think what a lot of folks lose sight of is they hear a lot of investment bankers lawyers consultants, whoever it is out there talking about all the M&A activity, like it's a fait accompli, right? It's like, if you're not big enough, you should just sell your bank and be done with it. But then when you actually look at what your rate of return is on your current bank investment, and you compare that to well, what if we take the chips off the table and you account for taxes and everything else, like what, what are we going to do with this money? That is where we try to step in and say, hold, hold on. Why don't we actually look at the economic impact and what's the investment proposition for holding the bank versus selling it. And if you actually do the math and run the numbers and show the family on a piece of paper, you know, here's what it looks like, buy or sell or hold or you know, whatever, like that is the kind of information that a family and that a board of directors, even if it's not a family-owned institution, should have in front of them before they make the decision that they're going to pull the, you know, pull the ripcord and go ahead and sell their bank. Right. You know, in, in the contract space, as you know, you, you have sort of these lead times. And I think a lot of times with our clients, they don't understand lead times. So meaning if I think I'm selling the bank in four years, uh, well, first of all, I think if I think I'm selling it tomorrow, it's a terrible idea. Right. <laughs> usually. usually <laughs> right. Too right. late. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but and if I think I'm selling it in four years, there are steps that you can take. Right. And in, in the contract world, you know, that's maybe have somebody come and look this thing over. We'll have scenarios where bank is is contemplating this and maybe you know maybe they're just a little bit ahead of it and they're saying hey could somebody just tell me what I'm a payout right what what am I paying in term fees and and whatever right can can somebody give me a, a range of an estimate from what I'm going to pay from a to z i would think that the same thing holds true in all of you know in, in scenarios even maybe more so related to tax planning etc but if if a client came to you without a timeline at all what would you say is the right timeline for starting to think ahead? You know, is it, yeah. is it, uh, I want to sell in four years, eight years, two years? That's a really good question. I mean, I would say as early as you can to give yourself as much lead time. But the other thing that I'll say is, let's face it here. I, I mean, it's really hard to time the market. If you think that you're going to sell five years from now, I would be telling you, you should think about doing it now. I mean, and by the way, I'm not I'm not advocating that people should start selling their banks. That's not that's not the point of my comment. The point of my comment is, you know, we have seen very recently, both in the last two or three years with the pandemic, and then in the last 15 years with the Great Recession, how quickly the economy can change. And we can, we've also seen how long that that economic downturn can last. In the pandemic, it was only you know a year or so before we sort of pulled ourselves you know, out with stimulus and other things that were sort of kind of manufactured economic saviors uh, you know, from the federal government. If you look back at the Great Recession, I mean, it took a good 10 years to kind of get out of that. So if I'm thinking I'd like to maybe sell my bank in five years, I mean, my advice would be, are you sure you shouldn't just do it now? Because you're taking a lot of risk by waiting five years when in the current environment, it's what I would call a, I, it, it's a seller's market right now. I mean, that's just the reality. It's a seller's market. And so do you do yourself any favors by waiting five years or is it better to do it today? And you know, who knows? It may, may or may not make sense to wait or to do it earlier or later. But to your point, it's, it's the sooner the better. I mean, if you think, even if it's a lot of times it's not, I think I want to sell in five years, maybe the thought is more like, I don't really know what we're going to do in five years or 10 years. And the family 
you know, just has never had a good plan or the, the board has never had a good plan for the shareholders to be more widely held. And it's just, you know, you just, it's like strategic planning session, right? Like you should be talking about some of this stuff at your strategic planning discussion. Otherwise, you know, how, how are you coming up with the direction of your institution for the next three to five years? You know, you got to have these types of discussions. That's what real strategic planning is, not just, you know, do we want to branch into the local market or into the neighboring market or not? I mean, these are the bigger ticket, big picture issues that you should be talking about every three to five years at the board level, if not more often. Yeah. And you and I talked about this a little bit before, uh, sort of offline, but you're, and I know you call it a risk assessment, but I, I call it a, you know, hey, I'm going to give you a 360 degree look at your bank. Yeah. That that to me is really insightful. And and the only reason I say that is because, you know, without being too shameless a plug, I guess. But but <laughs> I, where I see that is interesting is this, right? I mean, even if you're regardless of whether you're talking about exact, you know, just the two you brought up, exact planning or or contract side, somewhere in there you might have a contract coming up. Whether that be yeah, that could be your exact comp too, right? I mean, there will be discussions over the next X number of months. And if you don't jump ahead of them, well, well, first of all, if you don't understand the holes, that's one thing. Then you're going in blind. And if you, meaning the holes from a tax planning and all the other things that we talked about perspective, right? Then you're going in blind. You know, if you have this opportunity, pretty good chance there's a real estate renewal or a core contract renewal or a, maybe even an exec comp. I mean, you're, you know, a banker is signing contracts all the time. Those types of things that might cause risk by just not thinking through you know, a small handful of items without doing the due diligence. Yeah, you are really going in blind. And the the bottom line, I guess, for sometimes is you you're not going to like the punchline. <laughs> you know, if you don't do it right, you don't do right. it proactively. You are well, not going to like the result. It's um, it's cost benefit, right? It's the same reason why we say. So sorry, I'll shamelessly plug. You know what you do too, and, and it's sort of like the gain is worth the cost in almost all cases to sort of catch some of this stuff. And why wouldn't you do it? I mean, in, in, a, in a lot of circumstances, it, the assessment that you're talking about, that kind of 360 that we do, we don't come in and tell people it's, you know, you should be doing this every other year. You know, we call it a once every 10 years kind of an exercise. It's not supposed to replace all the other planning the board is doing. Just like with your core contract, it's like, look, you're going to, this is a once every, you know, five to, in some cases, 10-year contract that people sign. And you got to do it right, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen in that period of time. We understand as lawyers that like, there's no reason why banks should pay us to look at everything. Like You shouldn't be having your lawyer look at your, your contract that you pay your plow guy to clear the snow in your parking lot. Like you just, there's, there's, no, there's not enough risk there. You shouldn't be paying a lawyer to look at that in most, in most cases. On the other hand, you know, there are things on the other side of the spectrum that are you know, so big and could be so impactful to shareholder value. You know, get somebody in there that sees this stuff on a pretty regular basis and they can advise the board in an efficient way, both what the market is and what other banks are doing, and then also what might be unique to your institution that's a little bit different that you might want to think about. I would say that any of those items you brought up are probably right? Something that doesn't hurt to have somebody look over your shoulder on a little bit and, and not even look over your shoulder. It's just sort of, uh, hey, if I'm thinking about tax planning, yeah. I, I got better go find my, you know, I better go find my wealth manager, <laughs> at least, <laughs> you know what I mean? At least decide whether me and cousin, cousin Betty, right? And what percentage are we getting? And, you know, what's her tax situation versus mine, right? You bet. No, you, um, you bet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. All right. So I, I, we, I think we covered a good chunk of what I was hoping to hear, Pete. Is there anything else that kind of words to the wise related to, you know, either where this market is going, things to think about, 
you know, if you're if you're on either side of these these equations, is there anything else we haven't really spent too much time around? You know, I don't think so. I, I think this is a, a pretty good uh, a pretty good summary. We talked a little bit about you know where things have been the last year or so. I think I've mentioned where I think things are going to go for 2022, which is we're going to have this sustained activity and probably some upward pressure still on on pricing. If you're a buyer versus a seller, you've got different considerations, obviously. But I, I do think that there's been a window here where you you're going to see some more sellers step out of the woodwork, and if you're a, a seller. You might consider it. I think one of the big drivers here is you know, we dodged a bullet with the federal tax legislation, um, so that that certainly is driving some of those decisions. The, it's just the general, Charlie. It's you know if you're going to jump into this, regardless of what side you're going to be on, buyer or seller, you know what you're getting into, and make sure you've got you know your sort of advisory team built, whether that's a accountant, lawyer, investment banker, consultant like yourself, before you make the decision to jump in. As I think about some of the numbers you quoted at the beginning, is it fair to say that if the trend line is 250 and it's declining by 4% a year, meaning natural acquisition is 4% a year and de novos are probably nowhere near that, right? So, you know, is it fair to say that that 250 would just naturally fall off? In other words, volume, the straight volume, it doesn't really yes. exist that way, right? The, exactly. You expect that the dollar or the total number of them. That's exactly. And that, that's why it's so interesting. Like 2017 to 2019, we had about 250 a year total, but the rate of consolidation was increasing because you know there's 250 charters less each year, and yet the volume was staying the same. So that rate of consolidation was increasing over those years. And so that's exactly right. That's why I also say that in 2021, we had 210 transactions or so yeah, that's not 250, but on the other hand, we have fewer charters. And so the rate of consolidation was actually yeah, kind of where it's been. So I, I would expect you know, anywhere from, if I were predicting anywhere between you know, 200 and 250 this year, I mean, that's where I would expect things to fall again this year, but we'll see what happens. To your point, I think it'll be really interesting to see with all the, especially with all the financial movers, the PPP falling off, refis yeah. falling off, the Right, the the rate environment changing. I mean, there's there are certainly a lot of movers that would could either you know m make folks more uncomfortable or maybe more comfortable in in that's, that position. That's exactly right. I think that's a good point, Charlie. Hey, Pete, uh, we always appreciate you coming on uh, Bank Talk, and uh, thanks for joining us. I hope we'll see you again in the future. Right? Yeah. Certainly appreciate your your perspective on this stuff. It, thanks for the opportunity, Charlie. L love to be here, and I hope that you're. Listeners out there got uh, at least a little bit of a tidbit out of this uh, one way or the other. Great. Thank you. Okay. Well, I appreciate uh, Pete joining us. Great topic, uh, discussion around mergers, acquisitions, and valuations. Thank you for joining us again on Bank Talk and keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast brought to you by Remedy Consulting. To reach out to Pete Wilder, email him at pwilder at gklaw.com or visit the website gklaw.com. If you like what you hear on the Bank Talk podcast, please rate, review, and share our work with others. And we look forward to seeing you in the next episode.